From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Just two U.S. presidents have been impeached. President Trump may be the third. A development poli-sci students are watching closely. Today, the impeachment inquiry as civics lesson. Then, new movement toward a safe injection site for IV drug users in Colorado. Later, the remarkable life of Colorado's first licensed black female physician, Dr. Justina Ford, who helped deliver thousands of babies. Dr. Ford never had children of her own, but she had 7,000 children. And what motivates extreme athletes to jump off mountains and ski the backcountry? It's an escape from the doldrums of life and the kind of status quo routines that most of us find ourselves in. A new exhibition explores this psychology and tests your need for speed. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A constitutional showdown is shaping up in Washington around the impeachment inquiry. The president's lawyer sent a letter to Congress Tuesday. It concluded with this, quote, The president cannot allow your constitutionally illegitimate proceedings to distract him and those in the executive branch from their work on behalf of the American people, end quote. These are unprecedented times and a fascinating time to be a student of political science. So today, the impeachment inquiry as civics lesson. Michael Berry directs the poli-sci graduate program at CU Denver. He's teaching a course on American political systems. Hi, Michael. Good morning. I was a poli-sci major, but if I were a student right now, uh, here's what I'd want to know from you. We have lots of evidence that foreign actors interfered in our elections. And the latest charge is that the president put pressure on a foreign leader to meddle. Meanwhile, the country's system of checks and balances is being tested. Uh, So my question is, do you think America's democratic institutions can withstand these forces? That's a really uh, good and important question. I think uh, the Constitution and the American Republic has survived um, many crises in the past before. Um, So I do have uh, confidence in the Constitution, in the American political system, but it's certainly being tested now, as you mentioned. What would you draw on in history that is indicative of the republic surviving something under tremendous pressure? Well, we have had, um, I think, uh, you know, one uh, uh, point of... uh, origin is that I think all presidents use power in controversial ways. Um, But looking to history, um, we have had some instances where presidents have been impeached um, or where the House did move toward impeachment um, in the Watergate uh, controversy. Um, But historically, we we just don't have any um, precedent of um, what the House might consider an impeachable offense. Um, and the Senate removing a president, we just have no um, evidence or uh, examples of that historically um, to look at. I'm not sure what you mean there, because there have been two impeachments before. Yeah, I mean, so uh, in terms of successful impeachments, where a president was removed from office. Oh. So the, the Senate has removed federal judges from office through the impeachment process. Um, and we have had instances or movements where presidents have been impeached. Um, but a president has never been removed from office. So what standard the Senate would use to actually remove a president from office, uh, we don't have historical examples of that. Okay, how much are your students actually focused on this? Uh, They're quite interested in this process. Uh, Right now I'm teaching our Intro to American Politics course, and uh, in that course we have a lot of students from different majors. Uh, Some have taken high school civics before and have some sense of how the American political system operates or some of the institutions or actors that are important. 
Uh, but we also have some students, um, you know, international students or students that haven't taken uh, that coursework previously. So I really get uh, a nice uh, diversity among students uh, in the classroom. Um, so it does lead to some very interesting conversations and perspectives. And I certainly see the classroom as, you know, I want to be able to learn from my students as well. So I definitely don't see, you know, instruction or teaching as a one-way street. Um, so yeah, CU Denver is great um, in terms of our, our student body. Uh, the students are, are quite engaged uh, right now with, with all the controversy, as you might expect. Yeah, fascinating that you have uh, foreign students who are watching this unfold. Uh, so what, what is the biggest thing about impeachment? on students' minds? What questions are they raising? Oh, there's so many different questions. Uh, I think, you know, there's questions about uh, what does the Constitution uh, say in in circumstances like this? And we have some direction from the Constitution. Uh, As you mentioned, we have some uh, experience with history. Um, But there's also a range of, you know, legal and political questions um, that uh, party leaders and you know, people are considering at this point. So there's really, we can approach this from a lot of different perspectives. And I think the classroom is really nice because it gives us, you know, a forum where we can entertain or think about, uh, you know, different perspectives, whether it's constitutional, legal, Yeah, uh, why don't we we tackle one of those? So the constitutional question, uh, how clear cut is this, do you think, constitutionally? Well, uh, you know, the Constitution does give us some guidance here, Uh, for example, um, uh, empowering the House of Representatives with the sole power of impeachment. Um, Impeachment is is interesting in that most of Congress's legislative responsibilities are um, required to be bicameral in nature, but the impeachment process is one unique uh, area where the House and the Senate um, kind of don't act in concert with one another, and in this instance, uh, there's a sequence to it. So if the House does act, um, you exercise its power of impeachment, um, then the responsibility to conduct a trial goes to the Senate. And again, the Constitution gives the Senate the authority to hold those trials. Uh, but it doesn't say a lot in terms of um, procedure, process, what does the trial need to look like? Does it, uh, you know, how do, what, what standard of guilt should be used? Uh, so there's lots of um, procedural questions that the Constitution doesn't answer. Um, and there we might look to history, where we have had two trials uh, of presidents uh, in American history. Um, but even uh, you know, thinking about um, 20 years ago, you know, in some ways that seems like ancient history. Um, With the Clinton impeachment. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, and that's, it, it, there, I think, is a lot that the Constitution does not speak to. And so that raises, you know, questions about... Um, uh, you know, strategy, um, you know, should the House move if the Senate um, is unlikely to uh, convict? So I think there are lots of interesting political questions here in terms of strategy uh, and, you know, both parties' goals moving forward um, that the Constitution doesn't really speak to. I think what's so fascinating about impeachment as well is that it is a quasi-judicial process happening in the legislative branch. And a lot of the concerns that the president's lawyer raised in the letter seemed to be the kinds of concerns that you would raise in a traditional judicial process. But but this is a legislative process. That's correct. Yeah. And it's a political process, right? The, um, the punishment for impeachment uh, constitutionally uh, if if uh, articles of impeachment are improved by the House, uh, the matter then does go to the Senate, where the Senate's options are, you know, to convict and remove from office. 
Uh, and then the Senate can also disqualify uh, individuals from holding future office. But the, uh, it, it is strange in that, in that sense, in that it is a legislative body uh, holding kind of a quasi-judicial um, uh, trial, uh, but the consequences are um, purely political, and yeah. that's uh, from the Constitution. Well, on the subject of politics, I mean, we've done stories on how difficult it can be for families to discuss politics, say, at you know, the Thanksgiving table. Right. Is, is it any easier in a classroom? I mean, there's the political science of this, but there are the politics as well at a time when things are pretty tense between the parties. How, how are you yeah. navigating that? Well, I certainly understand uh, some of the, the familial politics and maybe not wanting to talk politics with, with close uh, family or friends. But I think the classroom is a really nice uh, space where, uh, you know, we can be uh, inquisitive, we can, we can be analytical, uh, we can try and understand things from different perspectives or maybe entertain ideas that we hadn't considered before. Uh, so I, I feel really privileged to um, to be able to to teach and to work with students um, because I think it is a, a unique forum that we just don't get. I mean, even if we're talking, you know, politics out at uh, you know at a Coors Field or you know with friends. Um, so I think there are forums where we can talk politics, but in the classroom we're often you know, assembled with, um, you know, not our friends, it's our peers, but they're, you know, individuals who might come from different backgrounds, who might, um, you know, have different experiences. And so I think that richness in the classroom is really, you know, something that I value. And I think it is, you know, a forum where we can discuss things and ask questions and try and better understand, you know, what's going on right now. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about the impeachment inquiry as a living civics lesson with Michael Berry, who directs the Graduate Studies Program in Political Science at CU Denver. Uh, are, are you tempted to like deviate from lesson plans and focus solely on impeachment? You know, I think uh, oftentimes in political science, uh, we do want to use current events or you know, the present to understand or, um, you know, help better teach um, concepts that we want to uh, students to learn. Um, so it can be a little bit of a balancing act to, you know, want to bring in current events and maybe help illuminate course content through, you know, what's going on, you know, today. Um, but we also don't want, you know, our classes to become just daily exercises in, you know, what's the, what's the what's the news today or following the president's Twitter feed. Um, so there is a bit of a, a, a balancing act that, that takes place. Um, this week in my class, we've been studying uh, Congress and congressional procedure and looking at party polarization in Congress and how the parties have diverged from one another. Um, so in that sense, I think we can also apply how does polarization affect the impeachment uh, inquiry and what we might expect the parties or party leaders to do in Congress. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of opportunities uh, to bring in current events to the classroom, but we also want to make sure that we're covering content and material, uh, you know, in a way that um, that conveys uh, the, that, that course content. Only two presidents have been impeached. Uh, that is charged by the House with high crimes and misdemeanors, Andrew Johnson in 1868 after the Civil War, and as we've said, Bill Clinton in 98 following an affair with a White House intern. Uh, neither was removed again. Um, of course, Richard Nixon was likely headed towards impeachment in 74 for his part in the Watergate scandal. On Tuesday, the White House called the inquiry an illegitimate and partisan effort to overturn the results of the 2016 election. You referred to the last impeachment as feeling like ancient history. What makes this inquiry, this time, a different animal? 
Well, I think the, um, of course, social media and how fractured the um, political media has become in the United States. I mean, we had talk radio and, and the rise of kind of right-wing conservative media um, back in the 90s, so that was uh, present then. But I think just the media landscape, how divided the country is, how polarizing Trump is uh, as a president, both among supporters and opponents, um, you know, I think uh, every every situation is is different and has you know those contextual variables that might uh, not have historical precedent. Um, but it really is up to the House of Representatives at any given point in time. That was you know Gerald Ford famously said, you know impeachment is whatever the House at at any given moment in American history uh, deem an impeachable offense. So um, yeah, there are lots of of interesting questions, and in some of those questions we might be able to look uh, back to some historical examples. But in a lot of ways, this is just an entirely different animal. Michael, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. He's Michael Berry, Director of Graduate Studies in Political Science at CU Denver. We discussed the impeachment inquiry into President Trump as a living civics lesson. Teens are paying attention to the recent news about deaths and illnesses from vaping. You'll recall this state has the highest rate of teen e-cigarette use in the country. CPR health reporter John Daly is tracking how the latest health concerns could be a turning point. Beth is 15 and lives in the Denver area. She started vaping in middle school. She asked us not to use her last name because her parents don't know she vapes. Beth says it all started at a mall with a friend offering a puff from a Jewel e-cigarette. It was kind of peer pressure. Then I started, like, inhaling it. And then I suddenly was like, wow, I really think that I need this even though I don't. Soon she had a Jewel of her own. She got hooked vaping half a pod of e-liquid a day. That equates to the nicotine in half a pack of conventional cigarettes. She didn't want her mom to find out, so Beth tried to quit on her own. But... It was hard. When you wake up in the morning, you're just like, oh, I need to, like, hit my thing. Where is it? Like, you can't really get it off your mind unless you distract yourself. Her school offers some vaping education, but she says there aren't enough resources for the scale of the problem. Beth stopped vaping last week, moved by the stories of young people, including a friend, getting sick. It was a turning point for me because I didn't really take it super seriously because I was like, oh, what are the chances that that's going to happen to me? And then my friend actually like almost had his lung collapse and he was coughing blood and mucus and I just couldn't do it anymore. It's not worth it. Colorado's health department reports nine cases and seven hospitalizations. We couldn't verify if the student Beth mentioned is one of them. Federal health officials are investigating more than a 1,000 vaping-related illnesses but haven't determined one cause. A Juul spokesman says the company is confident they'll get to the bottom of it. Thank you for calling My Life My Quit. Meantime, one Colorado program is ramping up to help. In July, National Jewish Health in Denver launched the My Life My Quit program. It's tailored specifically for teens who want to stop using e-cigarettes and vapes. It uses coaching via text. Congratulations on making the decision to quit. Its clinical director, Thomas Ilioya, says a recent study showed 12 percent of high school seniors in the U.S. are using e-cigarettes daily. He's seen a sharp surge in signups in the last few weeks. 
They're telling us that they're, they can feel their lungs burning when they're using these products. They're telling us that they can't exercise the same way they used to before. They're telling us that they can't give up these products just on their own, that they need help. Ilioya reads some of the text messages coaches received from teens. I'm 16 years old. I'm super addicted to vaping. I can't seem to quit. When I don't have it, that's all I think about. My family is worried and all the stories about people getting sick. Here's another one. So my friends are the ones who got me into vaping and they think I should not stop, but I want to because I don't want to hurt my family if I get sick. Nicole Lopez, one of the coaches, says most teens say they know about the rash of vaping-related sickness. It's freaking them out. They're scared. They don't want to die. I had somebody just say, I just don't want to die, so I need to quit. At Chatfield High in Littleton, southwest of Denver, Don Daniels runs the tobacco education program at the school. He senses what could be a sea change in teen attitudes. The reports of people being truly sick and dying from these devices is enough for young people to make a decision that's going to benefit their health. They're savvy. This is a smart generation. And they're thoughtful, and they have the ability to make good choices. Chatfield senior Mia Norad says she's making good choices. She doesn't vape, but her mom posted a story about the illnesses on Facebook and tagged her daughter as a nudge to speak up. But I think she tagged me so I could let my friends know about it um, because a lot of my friends do do it. Over lunch, a group of ninth graders show off what they're seeing on social media. One searches quitting Juul in an app called TikTok. And then just a bunch of videos pop up of people that are posting them, breaking their devices and like throwing them away and trying to get other people to quit, too. In one, someone is lighting an e-cigarette device on fire. In another, someone flushes a pair of them down a toilet. He's hitting his, I'm guessing, his jewel with a axe on concrete. Social media is often blamed for helping popularize e-cigarettes among teens. Now it may be playing a role in quitting, says one freshman. These make a difference, you think? Uh, I do, yeah. Um, for a lot of people, actually, I've known kids who have stopped vaping because of it. The state is surveying Colorado high school students this fall about how much they vape. Results are expected to be released next year. I'm John Daly, CPR News. In our coverage of teen vaping, we've sometimes used the term epidemic, and a listener wondered why. This is Greg Dozbaba of Denver. We keep hearing about this epidemic of e-cigarettes and vaping. It's constantly on the nightly news, on NPR, on on everything. And so I Googled a while ago, and I think it's up to maybe 19 deaths total from the vaping epidemic, they keep calling it, this epidemic. In this case, Greg's referring to deaths from a mystery lung illness linked to e-cigarettes. And so just out of curiosity, I Googled how many cigarette-related deaths are there per year. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, there are 480,000 per year. So I took out my calculator and divided that by 365 and found out that that was like 1,315 deaths per day still from cigarettes. And so I just kind of found it ironic that we have this new epidemic when we still continue on this cigarette, which is a huge epidemic, in my opinion, that keeps continuing to kill people for years and years. Okay, John Daly is here with us now for some clarity. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. First off, is this word epidemic being used in official circles? And what precisely uh, does it refer to, if so? 
You know, we are hearing about this as an epidemic in official circles. The medical definition of epidemic is the occurrence of more cases of a disease than would be expected in a community or region. In this case, if you look at vaping-related hospitalizations and deaths nationally, as well as the surge in youth vaping, I think you could say both would meet that definition as we're seeing more cases than would be expected. Okay, so using the word both for the use and for the sicknesses that have emerged, some of the deaths. Uh, Recently, one of the nation's top health officials, the U.S. Surgeon General, weighed in on this. That's right. In December, U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams issued an unusual advisory about the dangers of e-cigarette use among U.S. teenagers. He officially declared e-cigarette use among youth an epidemic in the United States and called for action to protect young people from all tobacco products, including e-cigarettes. Including e-cigarettes, so traditional cigarettes as well, I Mm -hmm. suppose. He had numbers to back this up. He did. He pointed to federal statistics that vaping jumped dramatically among high school students between 2017 and 2018. In fact, it was the biggest one-year spike of any kind In the 44 years, that one national survey had been tracking substance use by young people. Now, nearly one in five high school seniors reported vaping in the prior month. That was a nearly 10 percent increase from 2017, and that increase was twice as large as the previous record. Lots of records being set here, dubious ones. Meanwhile, our listener, Greg's numbers, check out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think of how many people die from traditional tobacco each year, and it does feel like important perspective, no? Absolutely. It's a great point. It's really important to consider many of the health stories that get reported in that larger context. Cigarette smoking is responsible for a lot of deaths every year, every day, uh, as he was pointing out. And that's one big reason why you're seeing doctors and public health officials, politicians, news organizations like ours give this vaping story a lot of attention. We know many young people are doing this. We know many people have gotten sick. It may be a fraction of what other diseases might cause for now, but roughly 3.6 million U.S. middle and high schoolers currently use e-cigarettes. So there's a fear that we're seeing a lot of people developing an addiction to nicotine and that many of these young people have a hard time quitting and could go on to become lifelong smokers. It's kind of gateway idea. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, what are the long-term health impacts of vaping? That's unclear, but as more research comes out and we see more cases of these hospitalizations and deaths mount, the concern among medical professionals is growing. And although industry argues e-cigarettes have helped some people quit, there is evidence that they lead some young people to smoke traditional cigarettes. John, thanks so much for being with us. You bet. CPR health reporter John Daly. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the latest on efforts to open a safe injection site in Colorado. Before that, though, a listener shares a memory about silence. We asked earlier this week, what's the quietest it's ever been for you outside in Colorado? Jan Jensen of Denver writes, The time for me that was most silent in Colorado was right after 9-11, while camping along the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. No overhead air traffic. An eerie kind of silence. All of this came about because of our story about the Great Sand Dunes, which could become the country's first quiet park. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. There's a lot of money in Colorado's legal weed industry. 
but people who were harmed by the war on drugs aren't really getting a slice of it. In Illinois, young black entrepreneurs like Angela Leslie might have opportunities that they wouldn't have in Colorado. This is just bigger than the cannabis industry. This goes along the line of prison reform. It's, it's really deep and personal. How Illinois legalized weed with social equity in mind on the latest episode of On Something from CPR News, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The effort to open a supervised injection site for IV drug users in Denver is regaining momentum. A federal judge ruled last week in favor of a similar project in Philadelphia. That paves the way for the first such facility to open in the country. CPR's Benta Berkland and Denverite's Esteban Hernandez have been looking into the local implications of this federal ruling, and welcome to you both. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, what do groups who want a site like this in Denver uh, envision? Like, what would it look like? How would it work, Esteban? So the the Harm Reduction Center, which currently operates a needle exchange uh, program, has been advocating for this site for the past two years. Uh, This type of injection site allows people to use drugs, including heroin, under the supervision of trained staff. So the staff would have access to naloxone, which is used in case of an overdose. And the goal uh, is to reduce overdoses, advocate uh, for drug treatment, and reduce diseases that are spread by sharing uh, dirty needles. And uh, last year, advocates got a big victory when the Denver City Council uh, Council passed an ordinance allowing for uh, this pilot program to operate in Denver. But um, that needed a bill from the state legislature to make it work. And that's a natural transition to Benta Berkeley, who covers the state capitol. Uh, did lawmakers take up the issue this year, Benta? They did not. Uh, a key lawmaker, Democratic Senator Brittany Pedersen of Lakewood, she decided not to introduce a bill to allow a pilot program. She supports having a safe injection site, and it's personal for her. Pedersen's mother used drugs for more than 30 years, and Pedersen's worked on the issue of opioid addiction and pushing for more restrictive prescriptions and better access to treatment. But she said the political atmosphere just made it impossible. She did not have the votes even from Democrats in her party who control the legislature. And then also most Republicans strongly oppose the idea. They believe it would enable more drug use, be a safety concern, and lead to more crime. Okay, this takes us to the present day and this ruling out of Pennsylvania. Esteban, what did the judge find? How might it apply here? So the judge uh, there found that the plan to open the supervised injection site in Philadelphia does not violate the Controlled Substance Act, which, of course, is the, the federal law regulating drugs like heroin. Uh, therefore, it could move forward. Um, but the feds are expected to appeal this decision. Okay. And in a statement, the, the U.S. attorney for Colorado, Jason Dunn, said the ruling is not binding in Colorado. Um, but we do know that his office uh, poses the idea. Uh, last year, they issued a, a statement going after Denver's uh, pilot program saying that the site would be unlawful and uh, they compared it to crack houses. So the ruling has no legal weight here, but I imagine that local supporters are somewhat encouraged. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a sense among advocates supporting it that it could potentially be applied, but it's not totally clear. Uh, they think they might have a better shot of realizing the site uh, through the court system rather than waiting on lawmakers to pass a bill. But again, it's unclear if they could do that without state approval. Reading your story, Esteban, online, I learned that this 
push for a safe injection site has a somewhat surprising backer, former Colorado Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman, a Republican. Talk about that. Yeah, so she has a history of advocacy for uh, mental health issues. She has experience working for health departments in Colorado and in Georgia, where she went to law school. And uh, she basically told me she sees this, uh, she comes to this from the perspective of, of uh, public health. And she doesn't think criminalizing drug use for people who are addicted will help with recovery. Um, she also highlighted how these sites can help prevent the spread of diseases like HIV. And uh, she thinks that this this uh, this site could really save lives. And that is inherent, I suppose, in the name Harm Reduction Center. Uh, Benta, what about state house advocates? Are they feeling emboldened to pursue this in the next session, which starts in January? Well, the political dynamics have not changed and have probably gotten worse. Lawmakers will be back at the Capitol, like you said, from January through May. That's months away from a presidential election. Mm. A lot of legislators are also up for re-election. And earlier this year, Pedersen's support for a safe injection site was used in a failed effort to gather signatures to recall her from office. This is even though she never introduced the bill. So if a different lawmaker does introduce a bill next session, I would expect it to not go very far at the statehouse. And Pedersen personally feels the debate would become so toxic, it would actually set back discussions on how to treat people with opioid addictions. It brings fear and misinformation around the people that are the most vulnerable right now. And it's just been a really unproductive situation. How important is it that a city like Denver be involved in what state legislators consider? As Esteban mentioned, Denver's vote to allow a supervised drug site would only have been triggered if the state legislature passed a complementary law. This had to be in concert. And... As this became closer to reality, you know, opponents became very loud and there are genuine policy differences. And for some lawmakers, it will be a tough political vote. So I think there would need to be strong backing from a city like Denver for a safe injection site to have any chance of gaining traction at the state house. And even then, it would be a big lift. OK, it'll be exciting to see what happens this session, how politics play into this. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Happy to be here. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having us. CPR's Benta Berkland and Denverites Estate. Hernandez tracking developments to create a legal injection site for IV drug users in Colorado. Hello there. Good afternoon. Welcome. The other day, I checked out a two-story brick home in Denver that looks like something straight out of the Old West, because it is straight out of the Old West. Answering the door, this woman. I'm Terry Gentry. I'm a volunteer docent at the Black American West Museum and Heritage Center in Denver, Colorado. The museum, which celebrates Black cowboys, early Black business people, Black military veterans, is located in this house, which once belonged to a pioneer in medicine. We are in the former home of Dr. Justina Ford, the first Black woman licensed doctor in Colorado. Dr. Ford lived and worked in this home starting in the early 1900s. And now it needs some TLC. The windows are showing signs of age. The brickwork's in rough shape. And money to fix it up, $150,000, could come through if this site on the historic register gets enough votes in a national competition. More on that later. 
First, we wanted to learn about the home's impressive former occupant. Volunteer Terry Gentry is the one to ask when it comes to Dr. Justina Ford. She was quoted to say she delivered a baby on average one every three days for 50 years. So she was packed in a car and driven to their homes to deliver their babies. She also had an examining room here in the home to take care of her patients, and she was always on duty. Right. She didn't do this work at a hospital. She, in fact, turned her dining room into an exam room. Why wasn't she at a hospital? She was granted her medical license in 1902, but denied membership to the Colorado Medical Society, and the membership was required to be on staff at the hospitals. And she was finally granted her membership in 1950. Many decades later. She practiced 48 years before she was granted her membership. How much of that had to do with the fact that she was black and a woman? She was told she had two strikes against her, that she was both black and female. She was also challenged with those two strikes when she was applying for her license, but they did grant her license and took her $5. Who were her clients? Were they all African-American? Her clients encompassed everyone in the neighborhood, whether they were European immigrants, Latino, African-American, indigenous people, Asian descent. It seemed that she had a fascination with medical science from childhood. I read that she dissected frogs. Her mom was a nurse. So this exposure came early on. Yes, she traveled around with her mother to take care of patients as well. Her mother was a nurse and midwife. What do you feel when you walk through these halls? There's a lot of spiritual energy in here, and I have ancestors in the museum myself. So coming into the museum helps me to celebrate my ancestors and the community that I'm a product of. Do you run into people who were connected in some ways to Dr. Ford? Constantly. We have guests come into the museum that are Ford babies, as we call them. Ford babies. I love it. (laughs) Is there a story about Dr. Ford that you think is particularly emblematic of her life? I especially love some of the stories that my grandmother told me about, because my grandmother thought of Dr. Ford as an aunt. What do you remember your grandmother telling you? Seems like asking you this brings up some emotions for you. I really miss my grandmother. My grandmother loved Dr. Ford and had a lot of admiration and respect for her. Just thought she was one of the hardest working people that she had ever encountered. Everyone in our, our community wanted to make sure that they looked after one another. They took care of one another. And in spite of all the stuff that happened outside of our community, in spite of all the stuff that was done to them, they stood tall. They got up every day to make a difference and make sure that their neighbors' lives were better. Dr. Ford never had children of her own, but she had 7,000 children. You made reference to the examiner who granted her a medical license. And he said, quote, I feel dishonest taking a fee from you. You've got two strikes against you to begin with. First of all, you're a lady. And second, you're colored, his words. And she wasn't allowed into the Colorado and American Medical Associations until 1950, two years before her death. She had to write them a letter essentially pleading with them to accept her. And an excerpt from the letter says, 
I do a lot of OB work, have delivered around 7,000 babies in the state of Colorado. I assume many of their burdens and make many personal sacrifices. I need recognition in the Medical Society for personal help and to help you preserve the present system. And they finally granted her wish after she had proven herself time and again. Yes, she was granted her membership in January of 1950. So it's 48 years after her initial request to become a member. This also makes me think of the health disparities when you look at so many vital signs of people in this country. African Americans are worse off. The hardest thing for me to see now is it, it seems like everything's about money. So money always outweighs health. Money outweighs civil rights. Money outweighs humanity. And unfortunately, the scariest part about becoming ill or having some issue is going to the doctor and hoping that you get taken care of without getting bankrupted. That is Terry Gentry, volunteer with the Black American West Museum in the former home of Dr. Justina Ford. The museum is in the running for a $150,000 preservation grant. You can vote for the project daily through the end of the month, part of the Vote Your Main Street campaign. I've tweeted a link at CPR.org. You now have the chance to get into the head of an extreme athlete to understand why they jump off mountains or climb a rock. A new exhibition at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science dispels some of the misconceptions and lets you determine your appetite for risk and new experiences. CPR's Andrea Dukakis went to gauge her own thirst for adventure. Pretty much everything about this exhibition is meant to be experiential, says the museum's Tim Blassie. Take the entrance. Visitors first have to decide how to get inside. They have to walk across a choice of three things, just a bridge, which is wheelchair accessible, or they can walk across a slack line or a log bridge, which appear to go over a deep canyon with the river running underneath. What's your preferred way of entry? Well, I've successfully navigated the log at the bridge, and I'm not quite there on the slack line. The slack line's only a foot off the ground, so it looked doable to me. All right, I'm doing the slack line. And it didn't take long for me to find out my limits. And I didn't make it. (laughs) Once you get inside, there are exhibits that feature some of Colorado's top extreme athletes, including Boulder Mountain climber Alex Honnold. And there are all sorts of things to try out. First, an eight-question computerized quiz, a sensation-seeking scale that asks a lot of questions and measures things like your desire for novelty and your willingness to take risks. I would like to explore strange places. Okay, I think that's true. I like to do frightening things. Uh, I would say not like me. I like wild parties. Okay, not like me. I can tell I'm not going to be one of the fun, extreme risk takers. And I wasn't a high scorer. I got 22 out of a possible high score of 40. Then the point is to compare your own score to those posted alongside the featured athletes. And you might think that all the athletes are risk-taking adrenaline junkies and that they'd all score a 40. But Tim Blessie says no. They're not a uniform block. Some athletes are willing to take more risk than others. But generally, the extreme athletes seek a higher level of novelty. 
novelty, new things in their life than the rest of us do. And also they're willing to overcome fear, to like face fear a little more directly than some of the rest of us are. Blessy says research has found there's an important payoff that propels the athletes forward. There are certain brain changes that do occur when you involve yourself in a sport that has a high level of consequence. And that's what they seek out, this kind of moving meditation that exists when you put yourself in these situations. The exhibition also offers virtual reality experiences where you can feel what it's like to be a professional backcountry skier, race down river rapids, or skydive. You can also lie down in one of those tents that hang off a mountainside called a portal edge and get a sense of what that's like. I sat down with one of the featured athletes, Andrew Frazier. Frazier does all sorts of sports, climbing 14ers, rock climbing, skiing, and something called wingsuiting. He talked about what motivates him. It's an escape from the doldrums of life and the, the kind of status quo routines that most of us find ourselves in. And whether I'm moving really fast down a mountainside through deep powder or flying through the sky... It allows me to be fully present in that moment as opposed to preoccupied with thoughts of bills or relationships or other to-dos. Do you get bored easily? Yes. I'm not one to sit through an entire football game or watch a full season of Game of Thrones. And how did you score on the scale at the beginning of the exhibit? In the sensation-seeking score, I was a 37 out of 40. Okay, so pretty high. You do something that many of us may not be familiar with called wingsuiting. And can you explain that just briefly? Sure. So um, wingsuiting is an evolution of skydiving and other forms of parachute sports in that instead of jumping out of an airplane and just falling like a rock towards the ground before opening a parachute, I actually wear a full body suit made of parachute material that allows me to fly like a glider plane. So traveling across the earth uh, as opposed to falling straight toward it, really giving the sensation of human flight. And I do still deploy a parachute at the end, but it is um, like living in dreams awake, that feeling of, of flying through the clouds and across terrain. What are you thinking while you're doing some of these sports? What's going through your mind? So... To give you a little bit of a background, in addition to being what many call an extreme athlete, I'm also a yoga instructor. And so I have a long background in this practice of yoga and, and mindfulness. So the, the paradox is that I'm actually not thinking so much in the, in the way of analyzing and narrating my experience in so much as I am really focused on just the next move. It's almost as though there's a, a tunnel vision or a narrowing effect so that really what I'm focused on is what's right in front of me. Is that something you have to learn to do, or is that something that happens naturally for you? I think we live in a a hyper-stimulating world with so much constantly vying for our attention that something that's unique about these mediums, such as flying a wingsuit at 130 miles an hour, is that the nature of the sport and the environment actually pulls for that full presence and attention in that I don't have the mental bandwidth to be thinking about anything else. So even if I haven't spent a decade sitting on a meditation cushion, the fact is, is that in that moment, 
it requires my full attention on what's there, which pulls me directly into that flow state that many extreme athletes seek, meaning almost this nirvana-like pure presence of just being in the moment with nothing else occupying that space. Does your mind ever creep in in terms of worry or fear or distraction that kind of takes you out of that state? In the case of a base jump, for example, my before launching off the edge of a mountainside, I do experience that prior to the jump. The worries, the concerns, the reflection on if I've double, triple checked all of my gear. But in the moment that I've actually pushed off the mountainside, it all disappears entirely and I'm purely focused in that moment. And in your regular life, when you think of what you do, do you ever get nervous about what could happen? Yeah, it's interesting that upon reflection is where I might otherwise experience the anxiety and thinking about, wow, that could have gone wrong or I might analyze what had occurred or anticipate what my next big project is. And so there is still that palpable fear, the anxiety, the doubts like anybody else would experience. Have you ever been injured? I've had maybe a scratch, but I've uh, knock on wood been really fortunate to, to stay safe in all these pursuits. And do you have family that wonders why you do this or gets nervous about it? Or are they like you in a lot of ways? My mom often wonders where I got my genes because she certainly doesn't share them. We will sometimes engage in this dialogue where we could look at a mountain vista and she'd be very content to paddle a canoe and take photos of the peaks. And I feel this compulsion to go and be intimate with them and climb those mountain ridges. And she doesn't necessarily understand it. So I do have to try to explain that difference and that call to adventure. And while climbing, mountaineering, skydiving or base jumping does make my mother in particular quite nervous. Over time, she has learned to understand the the degree to which I prepare myself and that I'm not a reckless human and has even commented that if she were to be stuck or lost in the wilderness with anyone, she would prefer to be with me because I'm the kind of guy that's got the head on my shoulders to, to make the right decisions. You were at Columbine uh, in high school during the shootings And uh, you've said before that that in some ways inspired you to to take risks. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I was a 17-year-old at Columbine High School when the shooting occurred in, in 1999. And many people, not only in the Littleton community, but in the, the surrounding area, the whole state, the nation, was were really profoundly impacted by that experience. I personally lost friends, classmates, neighbors, and it was a real wake-up call as a 17-year-old who otherwise thought himself to be invincible. And what was most striking about that event was that many of these kids were really following the rules. They were doing all the, the appropriate protocol that would have otherwise set them up for success in life and suddenly lost theirs. So upon reflection, I I really experienced a sense of urgency to get busy living, to go out and seize and touch and smell and experience as much of life as I could, because I just wasn't sure if I was going to make it to 25. And that set me off on a, a decade worth of traveling the world and learning new languages and constantly challenging myself to lean into the next fear and find out what was on the other side of that. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. 
CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with extreme athlete Andrew Frazier. He's one of several Colorado athletes featured in extreme sports beyond human limits at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. It runs through April 12th. Meanwhile, the Denver Art Museum opens its Claude Monet show later this month, the largest U.S. exhibition of his paintings in more than 20 years. Well, CPR Classical put together a CD with the museum to highlight composers who drew from the same creative well as Monet. Several tracks are performed by pianist Katie Mahon, a native of Golden, now living in Austria. You probably recognize this as Claire de Lune. Colorado native Katie Mahon performing Claire de Lune by another Claude, Debussy. That's from the album Music in Monet's Time from CPR Classical and the Denver Art Museum. Claude Monet, The Truth of Nature, opens at the museum October 21st. And that's Colorado Matters for today. From Studio 2A in Centennial, I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.